Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Many people are struggling to pay for housing that they simply can't afford. A 2019 report from the U.S. Census Bureau found that over 17 million Americans are spending over half their monthly income on housing costs. And as median rental prices continue to rise, that number is likely to grow. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. On today's show, how do we make our cities more affordable? Later, we'll speak with a professor on how free public transit can improve the quality of life for low-income families. But first, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Julian Castro. He helped shape affordable housing policy during his time in office. And for two years during the Obama administration, Castro advocated for more public housing and expanding housing vouchers to more Americans. Castro is now a political analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. Secretary Castro, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. You know, I want to start our conversation by thinking about where we are as a nation right now. We're now one year into the Biden administration, and last month marked two years since you suspended your campaign for president. And you eventually went on to support President Biden, but there are some key policy areas where we see some differences there. How would you characterize this first year of the Biden administration? Uh, I'd say there's been some very good progress. Uh, when we think about the work to get past the coronavirus, uh, get the economy back up and going, also just remove so much of the bad stuff that Donald Trump had put in place in his administration across different uh, federal departments. Uh, and there's also a lot that hasn't been done yet. Uh, a lot that needs to, I think of, for instance, uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act or all of the work that needs to happen to combat voter suppression and election subversion, um, as well as immigration reform that still hasn't happened. So it's incomplete right now on some very important big ticket items that I hope we see done within these four years. You have held elected office and you know that the honeymoon period is very short that no matter what you promise, people want to see action and they want to see it immediately, even if you are inheriting the problems of your predecessors. But we also know we're in an election year and these November midterms will be critical for the kinds of policy areas you just mentioned about justice, about immigration reform. What do you think the administration needs to do now to make it clear that Democrats deserve to stay in office in all of these key seats? To me, the administration needs to do two things. Number one, it needs to sell its accomplishments better, to put them into context, whether it's the economy or where we are in COVID versus where we were before. But then secondly, it needs to deliver or go as far as it possibly can to push as hard as it possibly can to deliver on voting rights, uh, on immigration reform, on police reform, on these issues that it still has not taken up in earnest, has not used much of its political capital on. 
Uh, and in some areas, you know, we're basically in the same place that we were when Donald Trump was president. All of that is important, not only because Joe Biden promised that during the campaign, um, but also because if we're talking politics, then you need to excite your base, uh, especially in a midterm year. Historically, in midterm years for the incumbent president's party, those are very tough years. And so, but the best way to stave off that pattern, to bucket, is to make sure that you've delivered uh, on all of those items, um, or at least get caught trying, <laughs> you know, make as strong an effort as possible on those items that really matter to the base. One of the things that really matters to the base in this country right now is access to housing. And even if it's not a key political or electoral issue, you spent tremendous time working on this as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. When you look back on your time in office, what would you say would be the greatest accomplishment? I think the most impactful accomplishment was something called affirmatively furthering fair housing, which was a groundbreaking rule that we put in place in the Obama administration that said to cities, counties, housing authorities getting federal taxpayer dollars through HUD, hey, you have to get more serious and disciplined about having a plan for equal housing opportunity within your bounds. Um, it was really unfinished business from the 1968 Fair Housing Act. Uh, and something that President Obama wanted to have accomplished. When the Trump administration came in, they put that on ice. When Biden came uh, in in 2021, uh, they revamped it. And so I'm glad that Secretary Fudge at HUD now has an opportunity to follow through on AFFH because that's going to help to further desegregate communities out there, um, lend opportunity to people who normally have been shut out of housing opportunity, uh, particularly communities of color in our country. And that's something worth celebrating. And, uh, you know, I, I, my hope is that it's going to be in the years to come very transformational in helping communities to be more integrated and to offer more housing opportunity for everyone. One of the outcomes of this pandemic is that we have been forced to confront issues that previously we took for granted or that we thought didn't apply to us. And as secretary, you talked about getting broadband internet access to lower income residents. And it's something that people took for granted, that everyone has access in their home. And yet when schools shut down, we realized a lot of children, a lot of families didn't have the access that they needed. Why was getting that internet access so important during your term? Making sure that uh, low-income residents of public housing had internet access was so important because, uh, as many people have pointed out, today broadband is not a luxury, it's a necessity. For kids that are trying to do their homework, for folks that are applying to college, for people that are trying to get their GED or trying to get a job, you absolutely need internet access at home. And what we found was that the vast majority of people living in public housing, a lot of them with young children, did not have access to uh, broadband. We helped to change that with Connect Home, which was a public-private partnership with internet service providers, housing authorities, nonprofits, and a HUD that uh, President Obama uh, launched in the summer of 2015 and it's grown since then. 
And I'm proud that now thousands and thousands more families actually have access to the internet because of that. But frankly, uh, what we need in this country is we need everyone, every single person uh, to have internet access where they live. You mentioned the public-private partnership, and one of the other areas where that was key was in the rental assistance demonstration program, with the goal of growing and expanding those kinds of partnerships to really deepen the impact. And some critics have questioned that. They've, they've questioned whether having this interest in privatized public housing undermines that essence of bringing people together and deepening opportunities. How do you respond to those claims and those critiques? And how do you see this kind of partnership being critical for really reaching more Americans? I understand the critique for sure. Um, This nation has not had the commitment to public housing for decades that it should have. Uh, In fact, when I was HUD secretary, uh, we were losing 10,000 units of public housing every year to disrepair because we're not investing enough resources to keep them up. And we had something like $26 billion worth of backlog on renovation needs in our public housing stock of over 1.1 million units. RAD was developed in 2012 as an alternative to provide capital, basically, to partner with the private sector so that you could get some of those units renovated and people in better living conditions. I think that, you know, the the balance that you have to strike is you have to make sure that it fundamentally remains public and the domain of those residents and offers the same amount or greater actual housing opportunity and units for people. If you can accomplish that, then I think it's, it's worth doing. But ultimately, what we need is a much bigger commitment to invest in public housing in our country that is well-maintained provides safe, decent, affordable housing for people. When I listen to you talk about having affordable public housing, it really sounds like what you're saying is we need options, that people deserve to have quality options for how they want to raise their families and where they want to do that. And in the U.S., we often think of home ownership as key to the American dream. And yet, Secretary, it seems that home ownership is becoming a distant goal for so many people. You know, data shows that the housing market, the prices have grown over 14%, and the average month rent is now $1,800. How do we dig into that piece about making home ownership or housing options more affordable for people who often lack the political capital to get people to pay attention to them? We need to invest much more in our nation's supply of housing that is affordable to people who are low income and folks who are middle class. Build Back Better, the piece of legislation that President Biden uh, has been pushing, at one point had up to $300 billion of investment um, for affordable housing. That would have been the biggest investment by far in affordable housing that we've seen in generations. It, It looks like You know, nothing near that is actually going to happen. But the truth still remains that we need to make much bolder and bigger investments in housing affordability in every form, not only public housing, but also in uh, working with affordable housing developers to create units that are available to the middle class and to lower income people. We need to 
boost up the FHA, which today is a strong, strong tool to provide home ownership opportunities to people who cannot afford a 20% down payment, but who can afford a 3.5% down payment and will be responsible, good uh, homeowners. FHA is a good example of the progress that we've made in this country. When it started in 1934, it was part of the problem. It, it sanctioned discrimination against Black Americans. Um, today, the FHA is actually responsible for ensuring more than 40% of Black first-time home buyers' mortgages. That's a success story, and it's also something that we should continue to invest in and expand so that we can create more opportunity. You know, one of the things that I tell my students in political science is that if you want to know what's possible in government, look to your local level. And we spend so much time focusing on the federal government without addressing that the real everyday impact on our lives happens at the local level. And you're former mayor of San Antonio, so I know you champion that as well. You've said in the past that housing affordability and access is actually best addressed at the local level. Why do you think that's the case? Local communities are able to navigate all of the challenges that often come with putting housing on the ground. Uh, There's a lot of nimbyism out there. There's a lot of land use and zoning codes that have been used to keep out affordable housing opportunities for the middle class and for lower income individuals, for people of color in many different communities, especially suburbs and uh, well-to-do neighborhoods in our country. And so, you know, because of the way that our laws work, because of zoning laws and planning laws that affect what kind of housing can go where, ultimately a lot of those decisions are gonna be made at the local level. And you need local policymakers with the knowledge and also the political courage, frankly, uh, to be able to navigate those issues and, and to make those investments in affordable housing. If you don't have that, you know, you can pump all the money that you want to into the system, but oftentimes it's going to get scrambled um, or, or people or these affordable housing units will just get put in one part of town only, right? And you're going to replicate a lot of the challenges that we've seen over the years. So my hope is that as housing becomes more and more of a priority for policymakers, because it's becoming more of a priority, a problem, frankly, for more Americans, you're going to see more action uh, in changing zoning codes, planning codes, um, and realizing that affordable housing investments need to be made on the ground. That was former HUD secretary and presidential candidate Julian Castro. He'll be part of a Connecticut forum panel on February 25th called The Fight for Racial Justice. When we return, Secretary Castro talks about why he's optimistic for Democrats in this year's Texas midterm elections. And later, what the success of Kansas City's free public transit program could mean for other cities. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. 
Coming up, we'll hear how some cities are making free public transit work and how the change is keeping more young people out of jail. But now we return to our conversation with former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Julian Castro. He's a former mayor of San Antonio and an important Democratic figure in Texas. He's hoping to use that popularity to get more Democrats into office this fall. In one of the most publicized races in the state, former Representative Beto O'Rourke is looking to unseat Republican Governor Greg Abbott. Ask Castro what he expects to see in this competitive gubernatorial race. I mean, Texas over these last eight years has been moving to become a more competitive state. In 2012, Barack Obama lost the state by 16 points to Mitt Romney. Uh, in 2020, Joe Biden lost the state to five, lost the state by five and a half points to Donald Trump. So it's been moving in the right direction. Um, these midterms year, years are always a challenge for the incumbent parties, the incumbent president's party. So you know, I mean, I do think that Democrats are dealing with a tough environment in 2022. Uh, that's historically the case. That seems to be what's brewing. If you look at the polling going on right now, the one silver lining is that Greg Abbott has messed up so many things <laughs> over these last couple of years that I think Bethel O'Rourke is going to get more traction than the generic Democrat would in 2022. We saw the, the um, power failure during the big freeze of 2021 that led to up to 700 Texans dying um, and uh, the refusal to really fix the problem in the legislative session. Uh, on top of that, people have criticized Abbott's COVID response. You know, this idea that people are frustrated with the, some of the people in charge right now at some level might hurt Democrats in many places, but in Texas, because it's completely controlled by Republicans, actually could hurt Greg Abbott and some of his colleagues. And Beto O'Rourke right now is campaigning furiously. He's barnstorming the state. Uh, you know, he's raising a good amount of money, uh, has a fairly high profile for a Democrat in Texas. So I think he has a you know fighting chance, but it's going to be a tough environment to work in. You know, one of the other things that makes it a tough environment to work in is access to the polls and access to the ability to walk into an election place to exercise that highest calling of American citizenship, and that is the ability to vote. And so many people are concerned about all of these new policies in place in Texas that make it more difficult for people to vote, and in particular, certain people living in particular communities. How important do you think that these restrictions on voting rights will be, not just to the outcome in this gubernatorial election, but for the landscape writ large when it comes to protecting voting rights for the American people? These voter suppression or voter suppression legislation by Republicans in Texas is part of the blueprint for how to remain in power longer. They see that the tide is turning. They see where the state is going. And so what they've done is really they've put into place all sorts of big and small pieces of legislation that change the mechanics of voting to chill voting among, you know, especially disadvantaged groups. Um, and also to basically point shave 
um, to point shave with mechanical changes that they know are going to benefit Republicans. And, you know, it might buy them a few thousand votes here or there uh, or, you know, more than that across the state. And the idea is, you know, little by little, just cut by cut, they're making it harder and harder and dissuading people from actually exercising their right to vote. Or in some cases, throwing people off the rolls summarily so that they actually can vote on election day. And all of that is meant to keep this party in power that has been in power for three decades, uh, basically in the state of Texas. You know, that, that's being replicated in places like Georgia and uh, they're trying it in Arizona, they're trying it in a number of other states. That's why it's so urgent to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and uh, the Freedom to Vote Act in Washington, D.C. to put a stop to this. It's urgent to pass that legislation. It's urgent that we remind people not to take their ability to vote for granted. But it's also urgent that we have the opportunity to vote for people who share that commitment. And so there was a lot of speculation that you might run for statewide office. There was a lot of interest in that. And instead of running for office, you are now a political analyst. What's next for the political future of Secretary Castro? And, you know, will we have you back in a few years to talk about a new campaign? Yeah, right now I'm uh, sitting tight and enjoying uh, the opportunity to use my voice, you know, to be supportive uh, on different issues that I care about uh, that I think are important for our country's future. Uh, and also, of course, like a lot of folks, um, you know, to, to do what I can to make sure that good people are elected. Uh, so I'm going to sit tight for right now, but uh, I've always uh, had a heart for public service. And so uh, it may well be that I jump back in at some point in the future. It's just not right now. You know, I decided to sit out the 2022 cycle. I felt like I had just run this marathon with the 2020 election. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll be back. I'll jump back in at some point when it feels right. Just remember us. When you decide to jump back in, remember us to come back for the show. It has now been 10 years since you gave what was really a memorable and historic speech at the Democratic National Convention. And in that speech, you emphasize the importance of education as a pathway for young people. And you say in the speech, the days we live in are not easy one, but we have seen days like this before and America prevailed. With the wisdom of our founders and the values of our families, America prevailed. With each generation going further than the last, America prevailed. And with the opportunity we build today for a shared prosperity tomorrow, America will prevail. Do you still believe that America will prevail? I do. I believe that America will prevail because I think you have enough people who are of uh, good hearts and are level-headed and have the right values. Um, we're going through much tougher times in 2022 than we were in 2012 when I gave that speech. Uh, but I still believe fundamentally uh, in the idea that we can come together as a country with the same principles um, and do it inclusively uh, so that everybody can actually prosper in our country. That's what we should continue to strive for. And uh, I believe that we can achieve it one day. 
you entered public service at a very young age and you have been making the rounds with young people across this country, not just sharing your journey, but really encouraging them to get involved as well. And I know my students at Quinnipiac University are excited that you will be joining them. What's your message to young people, particularly now when they feel like there's not a place for them? What's your message to young people? We need you now more than ever. We need people um, who care about not only themselves, but about their community and about our country. And we need them to step up, including to public service, uh, because we need public servants who are honest and who are in it for the right reasons and who are going to make sure that they bring their own lived experience uh, and turn that into good policy for everyone. Uh, and so that's my message is that we need you. Uh, as messy and uh, as off-putting as politics can sometimes seem, please consider going into public service. And I know that not everybody is going to be a politician, thank God, but at least, at least be engaged in our democratic process and make sure that your friends and your family, your neighbors are engaged as well. If you can do that, uh, then I think that you're helping our country become a better country. Julian Castro is former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under President Obama. He's now political analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. Secretary Castro, thank you so much. Thank you. Julian Castro will be part of a Connecticut Forum panel, The Fight for Racial Justice, on February 25th. For more information, you can visit our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. After the break, the future of free public transit in the U.S. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We know that public transit is a public good and it should be funded that way. It is true, it has been true, and, and I'm so grateful to colleagues in government who have fought for this, for anyone who has rallied with us to fight fair hikes, for anyone who has worried about how to afford food or rent or how to make ends meet because transportation is just yet another cost in that family budget. Today, we are excited to have plans to show just how much we can make a difference in taking those barriers down. That was Boston Mayor Michelle Wu earlier this month, announcing that three Boston area bus lines will be fare free for passengers for the next two years. Boston is the latest to join a movement of over 100 cities across the globe who push free public transit. Our next guest follows these developments in public transit. Dr. Rosalie Ray is Assistant Professor of Geography at Texas State University. She's a featured contributor to the book, Free Public Transit, and Why We Don't Pay to Ride Elevators. Rosalie, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. You know, one of the things that we've noticed is this increased interest in free public transit systems. And it seems like that interest has increased over the last few years. But this concept isn't really new. There have been some cities that have had free programs for over 30 years. Walk us through that history of the movement toward free public transit in the U.S. So 
the movement for free public transit sort of has a few different routes. There's the business owners downtown who, seeing the expansion of retail in the suburbs, think that bringing uh, people back to downtown, making it easier for them to come shop there, it would um, help their business, help them stay alive. So they push for fair free zones downtown. You see those in Pittsburgh still. Seattle had one until recently. Um, so there's the business owners in downtown pushing for it. There's also free public transit has been most widely used in college towns where uh, students sort of already are paying the college and then the college covers their student pass. And so Chapel Hill, which is sort of the granddaddy of free public transit in the U.S., is a, the sort of quintessential example. But there were also efforts in the early 90s to do it in bigger cities, in Austin and Trenton. And those were federally funded efforts in a hope to sort of reinvigorate transit in the U.S. And those did not go so well. Neither system seemed really to be that excited about doing it. Uh, it was a pilot that was sort of pushed on them. They didn't do the work to sort of add the service. They didn't work with their drivers on what to do with folks who were going to run or ride the bus all the day. And they didn't sort of wrap around it with any services to help unhoused folks who might find their safest place on transit. And so both of those pilots sort of failed relatively spectacularly. And it kind of put the brakes on bigger efforts for free transit until recently. And it sounds like one of the motivations toward free transit is about who will benefit from it. So you talked about creating a safe space for unhoused people to be versus the motivation to address students who say, I pay a lot of money to go to this school. I want to be connected to other areas. And while we see those sorts of differing motivations, we also know that the cost of public transportation has increased in the U.S. And so just as an example, MTA in New York City now charges about $7 per ticket for its express bus line. So yes, it may be connecting people, but it is much more difficult for people to sustain that over time. What do you see as a benefit of free transit systems? So the biggest benefit is being able to access an entire city with dignity, that the ability to use the public transit system without fear of being harassed for whether you have a ticket, have the money, have the right to be there, the, the sort of movement for dignity for riders um, is sort of the most essential benefit. The second is the economic costs that you mentioned, that it frees up budgets people to do other things. Um, there's stories of the students in LA who are pushing for fair free transit were saying, I could either buy a candy bar or I could go home. I could either sort of make myself not be hungry in the morning or I could take the bus. The, um, there were job seekers in New York who could access more interviews because they, during COVID, because the buses were free for that brief period. So it's enabling sort of other opportunities, other choices, because the essential right of travel has been covered. I love that idea of access with dignity. 
And I'm thinking about it, particularly during the pandemic, when we heard from so many public transit workers who said, we don't have the luxury of social distancing or isolating. We have to show up every day so that other people can get to work in these essential functions or get to a doctor's appointment or get their kids to school, all of the things that we take for granted. And even knowing those benefits, there's still people who will bristle when they hear the word free, right? Who will say, why should my taxpayer dollars go toward a service that I don't use? And even in large cities, it's actually a revenue question where they say, not so much I don't want my tax dollars to go there, but I want that revenue to come into my city so it can go toward other things. What problems do you see there in relying on public transportation as a revenue generating entity, as opposed to the kinds of equity and dignity based motivations that you focused on? So we saw really clearly during COVID that if you're overly reliant on fair revenue in your system, you get yourself trapped in a vicious cycle very quickly when anything goes wrong, that without a sort of pre-existing source of influx funds that can come in and cover this essential service when it needs to be covered, when the people aren't riding it, you can't sort of prevent yourself from having to cut service. And once you've cut service, there are riders who won't come back. And so then you have fewer riders, and then you have to cut service. And it's a cycle that we'd seen happen in lots of American cities before COVID and just sort of tossed aside as, well, America can't do transit. Well, actually, America doesn't invest in transit. And if you are overly reliant on fair revenue as your source of operating funds, you can't stay afloat, you can't invest, you can't adapt to new travel patterns when they happen. And so the difficulty of wanting public transit to sort of cover its costs or even worse, make a profit, the idea that it needs to be sort of operated like a business really got in the way of our ability to respond during crisis. If we think of public transit as a public good that benefits society as a whole, then we often have to think about what this means for where people live, where they can afford to live, you know, where they are employed, and not just for urban areas and cities that we often talk about, but those connections to more rural and suburban areas where many jobs may be moving uh, that don't allow for remote work. But the other public good that many people point to is the impact on the environment. That if we're taking more cars off of the road, we are relying on mass transit, we can relieve some of the pressure that we exert on our environment. And particularly during the pandemic, where fewer people were commuting Right. There are scientists who say there was an impact on air quality, which benefits all of us. Do you think there's truth to that idea that free transit can reduce emissions? Or do you think that there's a a bigger factor there that may um, sort of overwhelm the environmental benefit? Yeah. So the a lot of people want to use climate as a reason for fair free transit. And I'm sympathetic to it. But what we know from the research is that if it's just a change from fair paying to fair free, and you don't change the service, mostly what you pick up are people who either wouldn't have taken the trip in the first place or who would have walked to save the the fare. You you don't really get, particularly in the U.S. context where our transit is relatively not great, uh, you don't really get the encouragement 
out of the car that you would want to see for uh, climate purposes. Where fear-free transit is useful is if it's part of an integrated sort of system rethink. So Richmond, Virginia, went fear-free and implemented a bus rapid transit line and did some bus network redesign and really sort of put a lot of thought and effort into thinking through their system. When they had done all that work, it made sense to stay fare-free because they were getting extra bang for that investment that they've done. More people could ride on the new service they provided. Kansas City, very similar situation. These cities that have thought about expanding transit, thought about making transit more central to how their residents get around, get additional benefit from having it be fare-free. You talked about a system reset when it comes to transit. And I'm thinking about all of the other systems that need to be overhauled, disrupted, and reset because they have this connection to, again, the people who are using public transportation, but also their experiences while they are accessing these services. And you have previously talked about this as a racial justice issue to really focus on quality contact and interaction. Why is transit a racial justice concern? So bus riders in particular are some of the most, um, the highest rates of people of color using transit. It is, uh, transit has been for a very long time, a space that is uh, integrated and used by everyone. And I want to particularly shout out the group Why Accountability in New York City for introducing me to the idea that Swipe It Forward was not sort of a one-off campaign, but a movement for the dignity of Black lives. That their efforts to get Metro cards into the hands of folks who would otherwise be harassed by the NYPD was an effort to, as I said earlier, sort of make access with dignity possible. It's also the case that in many systems, particularly for youth of color, fare evasion is one of the routes into the sort of prison pipeline, that it's a relatively common way that people become engaged in the criminal justice system in the same way that we think of traffic stops that have been uh, so common for moments of police brutality. Fare evasion is another space. And so if we can remove fare evasion as a possible crime, then we've shut down one more sort of inlet into that pipeline. I'm always amazed by the scholarship of people like you who bring these things together that we wouldn't normally connect. And there's this aha moment of, of course, if the targeting, the enforcement, the focus is on where young people gather, then it increases the opportunity for them to get involved with multiple systems that, as we know, very difficult to get out of those systems once you have been brought in uh, by how someone has defined your presence and your being. And what we're also learning through the pandemic is that there are innovations happening to disrupt systems, even if the motivations may be more self-centered and self-serving. And so two cities that have emerged as sort of being at the forefront of this effort are Worcester, Mass and Kansas City that have now made transit free for all riders. This has been in place for two years. How successful would you say these new programs are to try to advance some of the things that you've talked about as benefits? I would say that the jury is still out to stay in our court system metaphor for a second. Um, I think the Worcester has definitely seen 
increased ridership relative to other regional transit authorities. Uh, they did not lose as much ridership as other cities. The question for both places, and I think even more so for Worcester, is how well they'll be able to sustain it once federal dollars um, from the CARES Act are used up. Is that one of the um, things that Kansas City was looking into even before was sort of where were they going to get, the? I think it was about $9 million that they would need in local money to cover it. Worcester's less, it's about two and a half, but they do need some sort of source to cover this. Um, but in terms of sort of people being pleased with the system and the accessibility and the additional ridership, those all sort of were working as expected. I think it's important to reiterate that point that the influx of federal dollars via the CARES Act allowed cities and towns to innovate, allowed them to address some of these longstanding challenges. But as you mentioned, once that federal funding goes away, can these programs be sustainable? And I think that's key, thinking about racial justice, thinking about access, thinking about quality of life for people. But these are both relatively small cities or you know, smaller cities, smaller towns that have been able to go toward this kind of system, whether we're thinking in the U.S. or even internationally, where this has been the process. Do you think that this is possible for a larger area that is more reliant on public transportation for revenue generating sources? I think it will be incredibly difficult for our cities with legacy rail. So New York, Boston, Philly, places that have subway systems that are designed in concrete to make sure that you pay a fare before you get down there to fully go fare free. But I think that uh, Mayor Wu's discussion in Boston of free buses will probably be a policy that continues to be talked about and continues to be explored, particularly because at the moment in many large cities, we have a shortage of bus operators. And so our ability to expand bus service, which is the other thing we would want to do with any money that came in uh, to a transit system, is pretty limited. And so if we have money available, the sort of low-hanging fruit for what to do there is fare-free buses, which also helps even in those larger cities with rail systems because it extends the reach of the rail at a costless way. Right now in New York, if you transfer to more than one bus, you have to pay an additional fee. Those kinds of things would ease up in a world. And many, many cities around the world have their bus and their rail at different fare prices. So I think fare-free buses are going to increasingly be part of the discussion. I think the fully fare-free systems in many of our cities that aren't starting from scratch are a much harder reach. And I hope that in those discussions, it's also an emphasis on paying a livable wage or more livable wage to the operators, who, as you said, there is a shortage and there's also a risk for people in that task of, am I really valued for the service I'm contributing? You mentioned cities around the world. So let's think about this in an international context. Estonia, the Baltic country of Estonia, has a free public transit system. And as you said, is move toward integrating these different modes and then be able to expand it, not just in the central city, but really in different parts of the country. 
And that also has a connection to tourism, to visitors, to the revenue that tourism generates and the ability to connect people to multiple spaces. Do you think that this kind of, you know, residency-based free transit could work in the United States, whether we're talking about tourism and generating that revenue or just more broadly connecting people across space? I think my concern with that, and it was proposed by a woman running for state senate in New York, um, was that when she put that up, I was wondering whether that would deal with the dignity question. Because if we still have some sort of enforcement on the trains for and on the buses to make sure the tourists have paid, how do we make sure that they're not also coming after the guy who maybe didn't bring his ID or has lost his ID in the shelter system or doesn't really have a way to prove that he too is a resident? Um, and so I think it's utterly possible that many, particularly college towns, would see the sort of college ID, local ID version of that. Um, but I think in our bigger cities, we don't have a robust enough system of care outside of the transit system to be able to sort of have faith that all of our residents are taking care enough to use that. Are you hopeful that we will move toward fare-free transit in the U.S.? And if so, what do we need to do together to better advocate for that approach? I I love Mariam Kaba's hope as a discipline because I do feel like you really have to work hard to have hope right now. But I think there are a lot of efforts and a lot of work of people really in particular trying to bridge this sort of false binary of you have to expand service or you have to do free fares that are really starting to try to work together in who all can we get to be excited about transit and investing in it and which of those make sense right now. I think Mayor Wu's pilot, Worcester's pilot, all of the small towns that are using their CARES Act to try fare free make me hopeful, particularly the more we can sort of study it and figure out what worked and what didn't and improve. Uh, But I do think it will eventually require some amount of federal operating assistance for people to stick with it. And so in order for there to be federal operating assistance, we need to continue to vote for federal actors who support transit. And that's the part that requires, I think, the discipline of hope to make sure that we can keep finding and electing folks who will support that on all levels. What are you seeing at the grassroots level of people who are living the discipline of hope and pushing these conversations in spaces so that legislators are listening, but that we're all acting in concert with this effort? What's at the grassroots level? So the grassroots level, there's an amazing organization I got to be part of for a while, the Transit Riders of the United States Together. Uh, There are transit riders unions from all across the country that are coming together to organize around uh, fare-free or fare reductions around service expansions, and in particular working in concert with the Amalgamated Transit Union, with transit workers that are um, making sure that labor is at the table for this. Um, I remember talking at an ATU conference a few years ago and got a standing ovation when all I said was drivers should not have to be fair enforcers. It's the least fun part of their job is making people pay money. And it's the thing that gets them, puts them most in danger. And so there's lots of coalitions to be had between workers and riders 
and also folks who help the unhoused to make sure that the whole space on the transit system is comfortable. Um, Philly's Project Shelter is an amazing example of that sort of working together. BART is also doing good work on that front in San Francisco. So there's really good coalitions and work happening, but the struggle is real. Dr. Rosalie Singerman Ray is Assistant Professor of Geography at Texas State University. Dr. Ray, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Disrupted is produced by Jane Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. To listen to all of our Disrupted episodes, you can find us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. We'll be back next week. 